Are you guys excited to talk about love and marriage? We're going to talk about sex, baby. Oh, sorry. It's a good way to start the message off, isn't it? Come on. All right, welcome back to Chi Alpha, everyone. I'm so glad to be with you all tonight, and I know that God has got some really big things in store for this. I truly believe this, and I'm going to say it a lot, and you'll keep hearing me say it, but I believe that no one is in this room by accident. I believe if you're in this place, there's a reason, and God has got a plan in store for you way bigger than you could ever imagine. If this is your first time with us, I hope that you feel like you're at home. We are so grateful that you decided to join us tonight. Please come meet Daniel or me after service. It's your first time. We're not too scary. We'll just try to give you a hug. It'll be uncomfortable for both of us. I also hope that you know that you are loved and welcomed here no matter what your background is, no matter your beliefs. You are so welcomed and we're so excited you're here. We are all truly imperfect people seeking after a perfect God. And that's going to be our cry for the rest of eternity. It's a bunch of imperfect people running after King Jesus and saying, Jesus, help me get a little closer to you. I also hope that you guys are ready for these next couple weeks. We're going to dive into what God has to say about love, dating, marriage, and sex. It is going to be a wild, wild ride. And by the end of it, you'll probably be sick of hearing your pastor say the word sex. So it'll be fun as we talk about sex and, you know, all that good jazz. Awesome. I wanted to start off tonight, though, sharing a story about when I was in middle school. Oh, I don't like that response. That's not a good start at all. So I'll just be honest with you guys. I'm not an overly smooth kind of person. Like, you know, you think of those cool guys in high school that are like, what's up, baby cakes? That's not me. I'm like, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. And to be honest, I can be rather awkward sometimes, as evident by trying to sing a song about sex before my sermon. And I can be really awkward around girls. Before I met my wife, I was even worse. It wasn't good. So in middle school, Derek was terrible. He was not very handsome. He had really long hair, and it just wasn't good. I've always really liked my own bubble and staying in my comfort zone, which makes dating kind of uncomfortable because I think the point is to get out of your bubble. And I remember a few girlfriends that I had from middle school. Or rather, there were a few girls that I called my girlfriends, but if we're being honest, I don't know why. We never really talked or anything, but they were my people I want to say, you're mine. I chose you. You chose me. I remember my seventh grade girlfriend. We started dating over text. I remember I had my Motorola Crazer, if you guys ever had those. I remember texting her. So we started dating over text, but in person, if I'm being real with you, I couldn't even make eye contact with her. I felt so uncomfortable. I'd be like, what's up, baby, over text? I'm like, then I just kind of run away when I see him in person. I remember my friends asking me, Derek, why don't you sit next to her during lunch? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's not be crazy. I'm not going to go sit next to some girl during lunch, okay? I don't care if she's my girlfriend. That's not what I'm about. And unfortunately, the way I broke up with this girl was not great. So... I kind of just went on Facebook and changed my relationship status from in a relationship to single. It's not as bad as you might think, though, because we had stopped talking like two weeks before that. So it's not like anything changed, but we just never talked about it. And I went to high school with this girl, and we did, had classes together and stuff, and we just never spoke of it again. Just changed my Facebook status. I also had a girlfriend in eighth grade. And I have such a vivid memory of leaving, like, you know the sewing class you would take, like home ec or whatever it's called? I remember leaving that, and she's like, Derek, hold my hand. I'm like, no, I'm not holding your hand. I remember just trying to grab, I'm like, I'm not going to hold your hand. This is uncomfortable. People can watch that. People can see it. That's not going to happen. I was not about to go out of my comfort zone for this girl. 
She wanted to publicly show our love, and I was not about that. Again, I was not the best boyfriend in middle school, to say the least. My relationships were not really about serving them or loving them, but instead, to be honest, I just kind of wanted to have a girlfriend without the strings attached to it. And many of us in here understand this kind of relationship, where it's all about what we can get and not about sacrificing or going out of our comfort zone for the people. Many of us look to how we can be served in our relationships and what we can receive from people. So tonight we are kicking off our annual dating series. It's entitled Loveology. This is based off of a book, this book. We brought some show and tell items up here. This is a great book. It's written by a pastor whose name is John Mark Comer. He's a pastor in Portland, Oregon. And this book's incredible. This is what we'll be basing the rest of this series on. So as we, this book really dives into how our relationship with God can impact dating, marriages, sex, and all that good stuff. But tonight, we're not going to dive into one individual topic. We're not just talking about dating tonight. We're going to kind of do an overarching theme of what love is. But don't worry. In the next couple weeks, we're going to get into the nitty-gritties of dating, marriage, all the good jazz. So throughout time, throughout all of history, I feel like humanity has kind of been on this quest to answer the question, who is God? For those of us in here who follow Jesus, we look to the Bible for these answers. We say, that book is going to give me the answers to some of my life's questions. And towards the end of the Bible, in 1 John chapter 4, we get an answer to this question. It is in verses 7 and 8, and it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So what is God? There's our answer. God is love. And that's awesome. But that does kind of create another question for us, and that is, what is love? So if we know God is love, and we want to know who God is, we have to understand what love is. And the quest to answer this question of what love is is a little more difficult. What is love? This is a really hard question that over tonight we're really going to try to attempt to answer that, along with some other questions. Some other questions we're going to try to answer are, am I loving? Am I ready to date? You might be asking, should we get married? We've been dating for nine years. Is it our time to get married yet? I'm just not so sure about that. Wait, what does marriage even look like? I'm 18, and the last thing in my mind is marriage. What, what the heck is this? Why am I talking about this, you might be thinking. You might be thinking, am I healthy sexually? If you go to a small group, you might be wondering, why does my small group leader constantly ask me about my purity? What is this purity thing? The only thing I remember about purity is like the church girls in high school wearing those things called purity rings. Do you guys remember that? Maybe some of you, maybe not. That's okay. You might be wondering, why did they do that? What does that mean? There's so many questions, and we are really going to try to dive into this topic over the next few weeks in this series. However, as we go on this journey the next few weeks, there's one question I want you to try to answer in regards to dating, marriage, and love. You ready for it? This is the question. And if you have notes, I would write it down. If you don't have notes, I'd write it down. I'd get a phone out, get a notebook out or something. We take notes in this place. This is the house of God, even though we're in the middle of Lang Auditorium, and we are going to take notes. So here's the thing I would say. Am I the person that the person I'm looking for is looking for? Am I the person that the person I'm looking for is looking for? Before we hope to find the one, we must become the one. And before we can, we can become the one, we need to understand what love's, love looks like according to God and according to the Bible. Maybe you're in this place and you're single, and you're wondering, what's it going to take for me to get a boyfriend or girlfriend? I want one so bad. What do I have to do? Maybe you're in a relationship here, and you're wondering, is this person the one? Maybe you want to get married soon. Maybe you never want to get married, or maybe you are already married. No matter what your situation, I am convinced that this sermon is for you. 
We are all looking for the question of who God is. And the Bible tells us that God is love. So we must examine what love actually is. Luckily for us, the Bible does have something to say on the topic of love. In the book of 1 John, which is where our first verse came out of, it's written by our good friend John, who spent some time with Jesus. He answers the question, what is love? So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'll get you some, okay? We'll make sure you get a Bible. Also, if you don't have a Bible, if you have a cell phone, you can download an app. So you can look it on there. It'll also be on the screen up here, so you've got multiple options So the person who wrote this is the person who said God is love. John said God is love. And he also defines love a little bit before he says this. So again, we're going to be reading 1 John 3, verses 11 through 16. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Wait, what? Murdered his brother? I've got a brother. I better not do that. Anyways, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Oh, now I look even worse. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now this is the good stuff. This is one of the best verses, I think, in all of Scripture. If you get anything, get this verse down. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So if you're going to write one thing down tonight, this is what I want you to get. One thing, okay? Love is laying down our lives. It's very simple. So what is love? According to 1 John 3.16, love is laying down our lives. We're going to unpack that a little bit. Before we jump in, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come and be with you. God, I pray that you show up and that everything that is spoken from the platform tonight is breathe from you, Father, that everything is from you and what you have for this community. I pray for anyone who walked in this room not knowing love, not feeling love, maybe feeling shame like Chloe said, that they're going to walk out knowing that they have an eternal future with you and they have a love that is so amazing from you. I love you so much, Jesus. Amen. Love takes a lot of forms in our society. If you know me, you know I love LeBron James a whole lot. I love LeBron. I love the Lakers. And I also love my wife, Taylor, but certainly not in the same way. The feelings I have for LeBron are not the same I have for Taylor. I also love chicken. I really like eating like chicken wings. I love Tyler Martin, the guy here playing keys. He's wonderful. And I do love my dog, Cap. Contrary to popular belief, I have a little dog who's really annoying. That's a whole separate story, though. And I love them all, but these loves are all so different. We love books, hobbies, movies, parents, and politicians. But all these loves simply cannot be the same. But before we dive into what love is, I want to dive into two misconceptions that we have about love in our culture. So there's two things that I think we think is love that in actuality is not. Misconception number one, again, you could write this down, is love is tolerance. So we think that love is tolerance, and that is simply not correct. Some people think love is you do you and I'll do me. Love is not having an opinion or caring about what happens in other people's lives. This makes love a very passive thing. However, love is not passive, but it is instead very, very active. Love is a noun and a verb. Love is not sitting by while our friends make decisions that could possibly ruin their lives. And it's important to know that this is in the context of relationship. We shouldn't just go up to strangers and yell at them that they're making poor decisions. That is bad. Don't do that. Don't go around the union saying, you stink, you stink, you made a bad decision. No, 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 no. The context in which we can call each other out and 
have a little bit of confrontation is in a loving relationship where we have a relationship with the person. If you are friends with someone, we can gently bring things up that might upset them, but we know it's for their good. We must love people enough to make them a little uncomfortable. I know many of us don't like calling out our friends. We have a really loving community here. But true love will work past that awkwardness to call out our friends. Again, our friends. This is not an excuse to go scream at random individuals. Love is being willing to go out of our comfort zones and potentially impeding on other people's comfort zones to share the love of Jesus with them. I think so many times we don't want to bring up Jesus because it might be awkward or we might feel pushy, but that is the opposite of love. Love is looking at the people around us and saying, if they don't hear the name of Jesus, they die and go to hell. And I love them enough to do something about it. Love is not sitting by while our friends spend eternity apart from King Jesus. Because if you follow Jesus in this place, you know that it's better than not following him. And we have to be compelled by love enough to do something about that for our friends. We must be willing to have hard conversations to help each other out. We obviously must be gentle and loving, as Paul says in Galatians 5.1. But we must be willing to speak hard truth and not tolerate everything. That is true love. Paul also says, he's a guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He says in Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Love calls us to speak the truth in love and to point our friends to Jesus. Another misconception that our culture has about love is that love is a feeling. Love is a feeling. Yeah. I really enjoy music. I love basketball. I love reading because those things bring me joy. In my head, those things are great and those things are things I love because they make me feel better. We can take this same mindset, though, with people, that we only want to be around people who make us feel better, who bring us joy, or make us happy. However, John's definition of love is quite different. He says in verse 16 that love is laying down our lives for each other, even people that we don't necessarily enjoy being around. Jesus was definitely having a feeling when he was on the cross. So we believe Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died on a cross. And when he's up there, he had some feelings, some emotions. However, I highly doubt that they were joy. That he's like, this is awesome. I feel wonderful. I feel like Derek Quimby's going to feel when the Lakers win the finals. I feel great. He was not feeling joy in that moment. But he was still acting in love because he was obedient. Love is not a feeling, but love is an action. Love is obedience. We cannot base our love off of emotion because I'll be honest, there comes a time when you've been married that sometimes the butterflies go away. But when the butterflies aren't there, when I look at Taylor, I still have to love her and choose to love her. We must be willing to love even when we don't feel it. Jesus commands us to love, to love him, to love our neighbors, and to love our enemies. This kind of love is not based off of emotion, but rather based off of action and obedience. The action of laying down our lives for others. Again, love is laying down our lives. The most pure form of love in history was the moment when Jesus Christ was on the cross saying, you people have all made mistakes. There's a penalty that needs to be paid, and I love you enough that even though I don't deserve it, I'm going to pay the penalty. I'm going to die and sacrifice myself for you because I love you, even though you don't deserve it. That is the most beautiful event in history. Jesus would not tolerate our sin and suffering. He said it's not okay that they're to spend eternity apart from me. Instead, he looked at us and said, there's a huge gap between us, and someone's got to fill it. It's going to be me. He stood up and did something about our sin. He changed the course of eternity with an act of love. And before we dive into the details of marriage and dating, we must understand this, that all love is rooted from God. The Father sending his son 
to die for us. We must look to the cross to understand love. Love is sacrifice. Love is laying down our lives. The word love really does not encompass all of this. In the English, English language, we only have one word to describe our enjoyment of pizza, our enjoyment of people and passions. However, we are in luck. There's a different language, Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written in. And in Greek, there are actually four separate words for love. In C.S. Lewis, book number two, wrote a book called Four Loves, based off these books. This book is incredible. On a side note to love, I would love to see us be a community of people who are reading a bunch of books. Because as we read, God gives us knowledge. And there's things, C.S. Lewis is 300 times smarter than I am. I'll be real with you, okay? This sermon writing process has been me reading this book, and then reading this book, and writing it down. Because I'm not that smart, but these guys are. So let's be a culture of people who read, okay? If you're looking for an author, C.S. Lewis is a great one to start. He also wrote Narnia, which is fun. Anyways, he's a good author. We are going to dive into, though, what C.S. Lewis has to say about these four words and how they are crucial to us for good relationships, especially marriage. There's storge love, which is affectionate familial love. Phileo love, which, if, again, I'd write this down. Friendship love. Eros love, which is a romantic kind of love. And then agape love, which is the godly love. So the rest of our time tonight is going to be kind of formed around these four loves and how they interact with each other and how they teach us how we are to love. So the first one we're going to cover tonight is storge, or affectionate familial love. This is the love that you have for your family, for your cousins that you only see once in a while, and the love you have for your pets, your dog. It's the love that takes some time to develop. But when it does, it helps you look past people's flaws and their imperfections because you love them. This kind of love helps you look past your crazy uncle's tendencies to want to talk about politics at Thanksgiving and to love him anyways. This kind of love is the love that for some reason my dog can poop in my house, he can bite me, he can be nuts, and for some silly reason I still love him because of this storge affectionate love. C.S. Lewis says in his book that this is the most generous of loves. We will look past faults, barriers, and backgrounds to show storge love. This love can be powerful especially when it's partnered with the other types of love. When you couple friendship love with affectionate love, it becomes a love that someone has for an old friend. When you couple affectionate love with erotic love, it becomes more than sexual romantic chemistry, but a deep appreciation for one another. And finally, when you couple affectionate love with godly love, it's the kind of love that will push us to lay down our lives for people. However, this love is not effective on its own. So I had a special pillow growing up. I don't know if you guys did. I had a pillow that had poo like Winnie the Pooh on it, and I loved that thing. That thing still sits by my bed. I'm not going to lie. It's right down there. But I'll be real with you. I would not risk my life for that pillow, and I really like it. But my affection for it is not going to be enough to go run into a fire and save it. This love is more powerful. This affectionate love is more powerful when it's partnered with other types of love. This love can also be dangerous, though. A lot of times, this love will make us think we deserve love no matter what. That they're my brother, they're my sister, they're my cousin, they're my... Mom, they have to love me. And this can lead us to becoming kind of jerks to people because they're our loved ones, so we can act whatever way we want. And that's simply not accurate. Also, this love plays into the idea of needing to be needed. So picture, this is a story that C.S. Lewis uses. Picture a mom who just has to cook dinner for her family every night because she's the mom and she has to be needed. She has to be the one to provide. But the kids and the father are like, my mom stinks at cooking. I would much rather cook my own food or order something else. But this mom has to be needed. 
because she wants that storge affectionate love. So she keeps cooking night after night. And they have terrible food every night. This will also lead us to not equipping other people that we don't want to be replaced. A true mark of a leader is replacing yourself and finding someone who's better than you at what you do. For example, Victor back there led the band tonight. That's what I usually do. I've been replaced. And that's a good thing because Victor's going to do it way better than I ever have. Let's give him a round of applause. He's wonderful. Yes. So this love can be dangerous because it can make us want need to be needed and make us not treat people well, but it's also so beautiful. It helps us look past social barriers and have affection for people that are different from us. For example, so there's me and Daniel, and then there's two older brothers. Oh, if you didn't pick up, we're brothers. Yeah. There's two older ones, though, and I'm going to be real with you. They're so different from us. Like, they're handy. Like, they're like, I've got a big beard. I'm going to fix that. And whenever I need to fix something, I call Avery Schottler, who's one of our people in Chi Alpha, and he helps me fix it because I don't know how to fix anything. They're like hunters and gatherers, and they get things done. And I'm like, do you want to read a book or, like, play some music? Like, what are we going to do? So we're very different from each other. But I love them so much because of they're my brothers, and they've been around forever. And marriages need this love to go the distance. You have to have your, your husband or wife feel like an old friend. All right, we're going to jump into the next kind of love. Phileo love or friendship love. This is so wonderful. I love my friends. I love the fact that God gave us this opportunity. It's something that Lewis says in his book is when we have common interests with people and when we're kind of going towards the same direction and we look side by side and we see people are with us with the same goals and same things they want to accomplish in life and they become our friends. According to Lewis, Lewis, this is kind of the least natural type of love. Like biologically, we don't need it, but that doesn't make it any less beautiful. So for example, I talked about Victor. He's also one of my closest friends. When I see him, it's not like my hair stands up. I get super excited. Like when I see him, I think a little differently than when I see my wife, Taylor, because I love Victor, but not in that way. Sorry, Victor. <laughs> we don't need this kind of love to survive. We need the romantic sexual love to survive because that's how baby Janes are born. We need that. But I think that's what makes this love so amazing. We don't need friendship, but it is so valuable. This love is a deep appreciation for each other. We value what they value, and when we look around at our friends, we see people that we could talk to for hours. We need friends to have an enjoyable life. It does not help us with survival, no, but it does make survival more enjoyable. It gives us a reason to want to survive. This love brings us joy and makes this journey so much better. And as Christians, if you're here and you follow Jesus, you need friends that love Jesus. We need people to encourage and challenge us as we try to be like Jesus. There's one quote from this book that I love so much. We're going to read it together. The mark of a perfect friendship is not that help will be given when a pinch comes. Of course it will. But that having been given, it makes no difference at all. This love is not like storge love where you need to be needed, but instead, you're going to help your friends out, but you just want to get over it and get back to being friends. It's a free-flowing friendship, and this can lead to some great things, some great discoveries, and can make life so much more enjoyable. However, this does have a bad spin it can take. I don't know if you've ever seen a group of friends who they're really close, and then they kind of get like a superiority complex. They're like, me and my bros or my sisses are so much better than everyone else. We're awesome. We don't need any of you chumps. You don't know anything about Super Smash Bros or something that enjoys people. 
And this love can make us feel like we are better than other people and we don't need any more friends because we have close people on the same journey as us. And that is ungodly because we always have more room for friends. We can never feel like us and our friends are better. It can also lead us to becoming clicky where we just kind of hang out with our own people. We're not, we don't branch out past comfort zones. Like me and my friends, we like to talk about football and that's all we're gonna do. So if anyone has any other interest, get out. That's not healthy. And in regards to marriage and dating, for the love of God, please marry your friend. I'll be honest. My favorite thing about my marriage is not sexual attraction or the romance, but it's the fact that Taylor is my best friend in the world. For some reason, we both love quoting old, stupid Adam Sandler movies. <laughs> we say like the same seven things over and over again. We watch Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe together, and we have a whole lot of fun. Please marry your friend. It's so much more enjoyable that way. So as I said earlier, friendship is about being on a path with someone. You're going in the same direction. So if you follow Jesus in this place, you are on a path towards Jesus. So most likely, a lot of your friends will be Jesus followers. So what I have to say about that is you want your friends to be someone you're going on the same direction with. Please have friends that aren't following Jesus, but your best friend, which would be your spouse, should be someone who's following Jesus if you follow Jesus in this place. I don't say that because we don't love people who follow Jesus because that would be ridiculous. If you're someone in here and you don't follow Jesus, I love you so much already and we may have never met because God loves you. But it doesn't mean that if you're in here and you follow Jesus, you should marry someone who doesn't because then you won't be on the same path and that's gonna lead to a lot of heartbreak. I love it so much that when I get out of bed, I can come see Taylor reading her Bible. That's when she's the most attractive to me. Friendship is awesome, but again, alone it simply won't do. There are more types of love that we need in marriage and in life. When our spouse gets different interests or maybe he's not as pleasant as they once were, which never happens, what do we do? We need to have a love that lasts after our friendship. Another thing is obviously we want to share the love of Jesus with this campus. So that means we're going to have to work past this friendship love because I guarantee you every person on this campus doesn't have the same interests and joys and passions as you. That means you're gonna have to go make friends with people who are different from you because we are called by God to share his love with people whether they agree with us or disagree with us on politics or sports or anything like that. So we cannot let our friendship get in the way of us sharing the love of Jesus. The next type of love is the funky time type of love. Come on. Eros love, romantic sexual love. Are you guys are excited for this one. It's the butterflies you get when that special someone sits next to you at Chi Alpha. Like, oh, please, please sit next to me. Please sit next to me. Yes, they're sitting next to me. It's the feeling when you start falling in love, when you're obsessed with that special someone. Eros includes sexual desire, but it is so much more than that. Sexual desire, or what Lewis calls Venus in his book, refers to just wanting to have sex. You aren't obsessed with a specific person or wanting that person, but instead you just want the pleasure that sex brings. Eros is not just desiring sex, but desiring the beloved one. Wanting that specific person, not just the pleasure that he or she can bring. That means hooking up, and Tinder, and Bumble, and all those things will not fulfill the void that, it can, that you think it might in your life. The Eros void will not be fulfilled by having sex with a bunch of random people. It is simply not good enough. 
Hooking up is not about love to and from a special person, but instead is about the thrill of sexual pleasure. The other person does not want or desire you. They want the pleasure or the feeling that you can bring. However, eros in its purest sense is one of the most amazing things in mankind. Come on, somebody. Finding that one person that you have to be with and having sex with them inside the covenant of marriage is incredible. Amen, hallelujah, free at last. Come on. Romance between two lovers is amazing. The feeling of eros should come into its truest and best form on the wedding night when the husband and the wife bow, chicka, wow, wow, eros love, come on. That is great and a thing designed by God. Sexual feelings and love are not bad in the eyes of God. So if you've been in a community or a group that says you can't have sex, just know that's all bad, that is false. God wants you to go to funky town in the covenant of marriage. However, this love is powerful and dangerous when it's in the wrong hands. Sex outside of marriage can destroy you because you are attaching yourself to someone who is not committed to you. They've not committed to you before God, before family, friends, and the government. And that's why we get married to do that, to commit ourselves to people. To say, I'm all in on that person. That's mine. So when I see Taylor, that's mine, and I am hers. She's my one. And to have a safe place, marriage is the only safe place to fully practice all four types of love. Imagine a container. They try to put all four of these loves in it, and only in marriage do we put the lid on. And then we have it safe, and we have it pure in a good form. Our spouse should be someone that we will lay our lives down for. They'll be our best friend, our closest family member, and our sexual partner. God gave us the covenant of marriage so that we could give ourselves fully to someone without the fear that in the morning they're going to leave if I didn't do good enough. God gave us the covenant of marriage so we have a safe place to exercise all four types of love. And if you have sex and eros love outside of the safety of that container, you will attach yourself to someone who can leave just like that. So when you attach yourself to someone who's not committed to you, it can lead to feelings of rejection, shame, and heartache. Marriage, in that moment when you're standing before God, is the moment that God seals your marriage and your relationship and puts his godly love on it. That's why we think sexual activity is okay in that, because God has given his seal of approval you made the covenant. And without it, eros love can lead to destruction. God doesn't tell us to not have sexual relationships outside of marriage because he wants to steal our fun, but it's because he loves you. He loves you so much, he doesn't want to see you go through the pain of awakening love too early and doing it with someone that's not your spouse. C.S. Lewis says that the danger with eros love is we will idolize it. We place eros love on the throne of our hearts. If only I could meet Prince Charming. If only I could find a beautiful wife, that'll give me that special feeling. We make a good thing, eros love, into an ultimate thing. If we are being real, I know that many of us in this room struggle with being obsessed with finding a spouse. That was me. It's so bad. So I remember one very clear story. I was on the way home from football practice, and I was literally crying to God. Why have I not met my spouse yet? I was 16. <laughs> I was mad at God. Because 16-year-old Derek, who had only hit puberty a few years before that, had not met his spouse. That's weird. But that's my story. Because I thought that when I find my spouse, I'll be fulfilled. 
That'll fill this big old void that I feel in my life. I idolized finding my spouse, and it consumed me. If that is you in this place, I want you to know I love you because I've been there. But your pursuit of spouse is probably getting in the way of your pursuit of God. Pursue God first. Pursue him above all. We cannot idolize romance. Shows like The Bachelor put unfair expectations in our hearts. Side note, for some weird reason, I watched that with my mom growing up. Looking back, that's messed up. Like a 16-year-old guy and his mom watching The Bachelor eating ice cream. That, I think, is the root of a lot of my issues in life. It's probably that. I'm sitting there, I'm like, they're going to Hawaii and Italy and Germany in the same day and singing songs to each other and they're in love and I'm here by myself with my mom eating ice cream. <laughs> Later in life, I learned that, you know what, I'm probably not going to always be Rico Suave. Our love has to go beyond the feeling of romance. You do not need a partner or romantic feelings to be complete all you need is Jesus. Eros, or romantic love, cannot fulfill you. I know many of you in this place think, if I could just find my spouse, I'd be so happy. That was my story, and guess what? It didn't work. I remember after our marriage, and I love Taylor very much. I think I've got the best spouse on the entire planet. But shortly after our wedding, I realized I didn't fill that void. And then, and only then, did I start pursuing Jesus with everything I had. Started spending time with him every day. And I promise you, a dynamic, daily relationship with Jesus is way more fulfilling than marriage. And if you don't believe me, it's the life I've lived. The only type of love that will satisfy us is godly love. We cannot idolize romantic relationships. We cannot idolize marriage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, to the unmarried and the widows, which is most of you in this room, I say that it is good for them to remain single. You're like, what? That's not fun. As I am, as in Paul. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Singleness is okay. According to Paul, it is actually better to be single than to be married. We have to be okay with being single and just being with Jesus. Because that will make you probably a better mission for him. I know how much I idolized the relationship, and it simply was not good for me. Only God can fulfill. If you seek a spouse to fulfill you, I promise you they will come up short. We cannot seek a person or an imperfect thing to fill a hole that only God or a perfect thing can fill. For those of us who do get married, if we build our relationships on this romantic type of love, this passion butterflies love, your marriage might fail. Let's face it. We're all going to get ugly. I am on a steep, steep climb towards being old, wrinkly, smelly, and ugly. It's going nowhere fast, my friends. And I hope that Taylor will love me anyways. As I get old and gray, and I lose my, never mind, I was make a stupid joke. Anyways, as I lose my attractiveness to her, thank God that she feels it. Uh, God is good. He can work past any imperfection. <laughs> With God, nothing is impossible. That's good. And so when I get ugly, er, Taylor is going to still love me. And as Taylor goes from like a 10 to a 9.8, because that's all that's going to happen, I will still love her. Even if the feelings are gone, even if we don't have date nights every night, I'm still going to love her because she's my wife. And the only way, the only way for that to work 
is through the final type of love. Finally, we have the best love of all, agape love or godly love. We must go back to John to understand this love. The best form of love is this godly love. And 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, uses agape love to describe. In this love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also sought to love, ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In that passage, when you see the word love, you can substitute it for the word agape. Verse 11 says that we ought to love one another as God loves us. We ought to agape one another as God agapes us. This agape form of love is an action. It's a verb. We are actively loving people. We are laying down our lives for each other as we talked about in the beginning. We need agape love to characterize all of our love. Agape love coupled with the storge or affectionate love calls a mother to lay down her life for her child. Agape love with phileo or friendship love calls a friend to love like Jesus and to lay down his life for his friends. Agape love coupled with eros love calls a wife to love her husband even when he gets old and cannot serve her in the same way that he once did. If we want to have successful relationships, we must be willing to lay our lives down for others. We must love the people around us as Christ loved us, which is a sacrificial love. All other loves fade. This is the only love that goes from everlasting to everlasting. Lewis tells us this. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. If love is to be a blessing, not a misery, it must be for the only beloved who will never pass away. I hate to break it to us tonight, but our spouses will die. Our parents will die. Our friends will die, and, and only Jesus will remain. Only he can satisfy. We must build our love and put all our chips into this basket of agape love. This love does not rely on feelings, but a choice. A choice of obedience to a king. Jesus commands us to have this love for everyone. When he says to love our neighbors, he means with an agape type of love. We need to learn to love everyone that we cross paths with with agape love. This kind of love should do something to us. Actually, I think this kind of love should do three things to us. Ready for number one? Agape love should compel us to sacrifice. This kind of love will call, cause us to be willing to sacrifice for the people around us. For our family or people with storge love, we'll be willing to share the truth with them, even though it might be uncomfortable. Let's say you have a sibling or a parent who doesn't love Jesus. It's awkward to share the love of Jesus with them. But if we have true agape love for them, we will do that, even though it's uncomfortable. Just because they are your parent or your sibling, that does not mean that they do not need to hear the love of Jesus. For our friends or people with phileo love, we will go out of our way for them. We will sacrifice our time for the people in this room because we love them the way God loves them. For our romantic partners, we will sacrifice ourselves for them. The biggest way that we can show this type of love with our romantic partners is by acting purely with them. If we truly love them as God loves them, the last thing we want to do is to cause them to sin. This means that we won't give in to sexual temptation because we love our partner so much. If you truly love your partner, protect their purity in their relationship with Jesus. You must care about your partner's purity in their walk with Jesus. True agape love will not let us give, give in to temptation. Because not only is that causing us to sin, but also our partner. Love your partner enough to say no. Sacrifice your sexual pleasure 
for their walk with Jesus. Finally, we must sacrifice for God. You might be thinking, how can I sacrifice the creator of the universe? It's simple. Spend time with him. Get up an extra hour early and read your Bible, pray, and spend time with him. If we want to thrive in our relationships with our family, friends, romantic partners, and God, we must be willing to sacrifice and lay down our lives for each other. If your marriage is all about what you can get out of it, guess what? It will fail. If your friendships are all about what they do for you and how they make you feel, that will be a one-way street. True depth in friendship happens when you start sacrificing for each other. However, not only does agape love cause us to sacrifice, but the second thing is agape love should compel us to trust. If we know in our hearts that Jesus did what he said he did, that should make us trust him. If this God of the universe truly came, lived a perfect life, and died for you and me, we should probably trust what he has to say. We can trust a God who loves like this. The best way we can show trust is through obedience. If we trust him, we will trust his commandments, and his commandments are in the Bible. So we'll read the Bible, we'll see what Jesus tells us to do, and we will do it because we trust him. God is not trying to ruin your fun, but instead God knows what's best for you because he loves you. And if we trust him, we'll trust that he knows best because I do not know best. If I made decisions based off of what I think is best and what's going to be most enjoyable for me, my life would go down a very bad path. But the only way that I can stay running after Jesus is because I read my Bible and I do what he says. And I implore you to do the same and to trust King Jesus because I promise you if you put your trust in him, it'll be worth it. We need to trust God when he says not to awaken love too early, when he says not to have sexual activity outside of marriage. We need to trust his biblical commandments. Also, if God is telling you to be single, you need to trust him that he will be enough. If it's just you and Jesus, please trust him he'll be enough. I think the root of a lot of sin comes from us not trusting God with our pleasure. You'll watch pornography or spend eight hours a day playing video games because you think those are things that are me fun. And you don't trust God for your pleasure. You don't trust God can satisfy not only your needs, but your wants. Let us be a people that trust God with everything. Finally, agape love should compel us to serve. True love is serving. If agape love is our foundation, that will cause us to have a servant's heart towards people. Instead of just trying to receive from our small group leaders, if you're in here, please go to a small group. It'll change your life. Best decision you can make besides following Jesus. But not only will we look to our small group leaders to serve us, but we will serve them. Once in a while, we'll buy their coffee instead of them buying my coffee. Hallelujah, somebody. We will look to serve our leaders and to serve our community. Agape love will cause us to come early to help set up and tear down. All this isn't here. We have to put it here. And then we have to take it away. If you will have agape love, which is a love of serving, will come and help. It will cause us to volunteer in our community. It will cause us to serve our friends even when we don't want to. And there's a story in the Bible that describes love and serving more than any other story in the world, in my opinion. So I want you to think back to Bible times. It was kind of gross. There wasn't technology, no iPhones, no showers. It wasn't good. And I want you to think of walking with Jesus. So Jesus would walk with and be with his closest friends in the world. And to his friends, Jesus was kind of their hero. 
So it would be kind of like me walking around with LeBron. Like, this guy's my hero. I get to be with him? This is awesome. So imagine that. So think of your hero. Imagine if you got to spend three years walking and learning from them. If LeBron trained me in basketball for three years, I still wouldn't be very good, but it would be fun. Imagine getting to spend time with your heroes learning from them. All right, so you're in Jesus times. Imagine it's kind of smelly, kind of gross, not a lot of technology, and you're walking around, and you come to a house. You're in a house with your hero, and you come in and start eating supper. You get ready to eat. You're with your hero and with your closest friends in the world. This is the context of the story we're going to share. We'll be reading out of John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Just a reminder, we're in year 30 or so like that. They didn't wash their feet. They wore sandals everywhere. They walked around with everyone's waste and bathroom things around them. These feet were not just gross. They were utterly disgusting. These feet were the grossest things you can imagine. And Jesus, who was these guys' hero, got on his knees, took his towel, and washed their feet. Imagine your hero doing that for you. In verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That story gets me every time. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, got on his knees and washed the smelly feet of his friends. He not only came and lived a human life, that's humbling enough that the God of the universe came and lived a human life. Not only a human life, but he was not born of royalty. He was not born a king or queen. He was born an infant in a manger. Not only did he humble himself enough to do that, he humbled himself enough to wash his friend's smelly feet. 
God loves us enough to serve us. You and I are God's closest friends. And God came and washed our feet. Are you willing to be like Jesus and to love like King Jesus and wash the feet of the people around you? Are you a servant like Jesus? I know myself at times, I think way too highly of myself. Then I'm better than doing some things. I don't need to help set up. I don't need to tear down. I don't need to clean that. I don't need to do that because I am a leader. I'm above that. And that is a lie. We are not above anything. The King of Kings was willing to wash our feet. We better be willing to do the same. Another fact about this story is that not only was Jesus willing to wash his friend's feet, he washed the feet of Judas. Judas was the disciple that betrayed Jesus and led to his death. Judas is literally the man that led to his murder. Jesus knew that was going to happen. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. But he washed his feet anyways. Serving our friends and loved ones is simply not enough. We must be willing to serve and love everyone, whether they love us or if they hate us. And the best way that we can serve our community is by sharing the love of Jesus with them. This campus desperately needs a savior. When I look to the future of what I want Chi Alpha and this campus to be, I want this room filled not just with people or butts and seats, but I want this room filled with a bunch of servants ready to wash this canvas's feet. And that's how we know we made a difference. So I'm not about filling up a room just to fill up a room. I'm, I'm about creating disciples who make disciples that are willing to wash the feet of this campus that might hate them. There are people on this campus that hate the name of Jesus. There are people in your classrooms that will mock you and make fun of you for loving Jesus, but we are going to serve and love them enough to talk about Jesus anyways, to invite them to Chi Alpha a hundred times, even if they said no the first 99, because we are not gonna stop running after our friends. We are not gonna stop washing their feet, even if they are going to betray us. Even if that person is going to lead to your death, that is not an excuse to not wash their feet and to not love and serve them. We must love this campus enough to count the cost and to go outside of our comfort zones to say, I love you so much, I'm not gonna sit by and watch you die and go to hell. I am gonna share the love of Jesus with you. Only that can be our motivator. If our motivation is to create a big ministry, then we will fail. If our motivation is to have fame and to create the name of Chi Alpha and to fill this room, we will fail. Our motivation must simply be to wash the feet of the people at the University of Northern Iowa. We must be willing to go out of our comfort zones enough to share the love of Jesus. We must invite our classmates to Chi Alpha and tell them about the love of Jesus. And that's how we can serve them. Jesus is the answer that our generation needs. I promise you, it is not pushy to share his love. It might make them feel uncomfortable, but again, love is not tolerance. Love is an action. And the greatest action we can do is an action of obedience. Obedience to share the name of Jesus. If you are a Christian, I want you to think about what God has done for you. Think about your life before and after God. Aren't you glad that someone is willing to maybe be a little pushy and share the love of Jesus with you? Aren't you glad someone would wash your feet? And the only proper response is to wash the feet of others. We must be willing to share agape love with the people around us. What God has done in you wants to do through you. What God has done in you, 
he wants to do through you. So if you are a person in this place who calls Jesus your Lord, he not only wants that, he wants you to take what he did in your life and for you to spread it like wildfire across this campus. He has washed your feet. Now he commands we wash each other's feet. He gave us agape love and he died on a cross for us. And he is calling us to do the same to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Again, please remember this, that love, love is laying down our lives. You and I have been loved so well by Jesus. He came, he sacrificed it all, and he gave us hope. He now wants to do the same thing through our relationships. We are called to sacrifice for our families, our friends, and our romantic partners. We must be willing to love our campus enough to be bold, to share his love with them. If you want a successful relationship, you must be willing to sacrifice for people. If you want a successful relationship with Jesus, you need to look to him for your satisfaction and not a romantic partner because I promise you they will come up short. Maybe you're in this place and you don't follow Jesus at all. He loves you so much more than any person ever could. We have a God that gave it all for us. He's not just some distant figure that created humanity and left it. He's a creator who gave everything. He gave his son, King Jesus. And if you give your everything to Jesus, the God who came down on a, and died on a cross for you and I, who looked at us and saw how messed up and mistaken we were and said, that simply will not do. I'm going to bridge the gap. If you will love this Jesus, if you'll give everything to him, I promise you it'll be worth it. He wants to forgive you. He wants to pay your debts. He wants to pay your penalty. He wants to liberate you and break the chains on your life. He wants to show you the greatest agape love that's ever happened. We have an incredible opportunity. We have the opportunity to be like Jesus and to serve people, to sacrifice, trust, and serve like Jesus did. We have the hope that this generation needs. Please remember this simple fact that love is laying down our lives. We must commit to being a people that not only seeks after storge, phileo, and eros love, but above all, we seek after agape love, the love that lasts, the love that goes the distance the love that fulfills, the love that gives our lives purpose. We must be willing to count the cost and to do whatever it takes to help this campus experience this kind of love. We must look to Jesus in regards to romantic relationships. If you are in this place and your romantic relationship is not centered on God, I want you to know that's okay. God is not mad at you. God is not judging you. There's no shame in this place. For Romans 8, 1 says, there, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that is not a ticket to keep on sinning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in a bad romantic relationship, that's okay. It's time to change it though. Because love should compel us to serve our partners and to serve our king enough to be willing to change our actions. We must be willing to sacrifice for our partners enough to tell ourselves no and not get in the way of their sexual purity. We must lay down our lives to this world and we must look to our example, which is King Jesus on a cross as we live our lives. We have a great opportunity to do this right now. We have the opportunity of a lifetime. We have the opportunity to serve the creator of the universe. We have an opportunity to do something so powerful, which is to share the love of Jesus, share the way God has changed your life with the 10,000 students on this campus who do not know his name. We have an opportunity to get up every day and spend time with him, to sacrifice and serve our king by being with him. We have an opportunity to pursue purity in our relationships. We have an opportunity to serve the greatest God and King of all mankind. And one way that we serve here in Chi Alpha is we worship the heck out of this Jesus. 
We give everything. We go out. That's why we raise our hands because we're saying, God, you are good. You are my king. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to show agape love towards you by worshiping. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to worship King Jesus. So stand up on your feet. As we sing this song, I want you to share the love of Jesus. I want you to worship King Jesus with everything you have because God is good and God loves you.